Um, uh, my name is Zach, and I'm the pastor here at Central. If you're visiting with us today, or if I've just not had a chance to meet you yet, um, I'll be hanging out in the back of the room over here uh, when we dismiss here in a few minutes. Please come by and say hello. Give me a chance to, to meet you, get to know you a bit. We're going to be in John 11 today, if you want to go ahead and open that up. And as we've done the past few weeks, we're going to kind of jump in and out of John 11. So keep your thumb there when we stop reading. We'll get, we'll get back into it in time. Um, and happy Halloween, right? Today is actually October 31st, a Halloween on a Sunday. So that's kind of fun. The, the last thing that I want to do uh, is, is step on the toes of anyone who likes Halloween. I'm not trying to douse a fire or, or anything like that. We have a variety of interests, right? Some people like sci-fi. Some people don't like sci-fi. Some people like soda. Some people won't drink soda. Some people like sports. Some people aren't sports people. I've heard that there are even people who will run, like on purpose, in their free time for recreation. So different strokes for different folks, okay? So again, I'm not trying to belittle or upset or, or, or defame anyone who feels differently from me about this, but I just got to say, I'm not a huge fan of scary stuff. I don't like scary movies. I'm not really into scary TV shows. I would never go to like one of those haunted houses that you got to pay to get in and they put on the little show. That, that, that doesn't appeal to me at all. If it appeals to you, that's great. That's fine. Again, I'm not trying to argue with you, but just as we come around this time of year, there are all these like, like decorations that I see in yards and, and even at the store uh, sometimes. And I just think I, I, I don't, I don't like them. Uh, sorry to sound like the get off my lawn guy, but uh, that's to me, I'm okay with like the pumpkins, the jack-o'-lanterns, the occasional friendly looking ghost or the, the black cat, things of that nature. But uh, you know, there's some things I look at and I wonder if it's not too scary and maybe you disagree with me. And again, it's fine if you do, but it seems to me there's a fascination in our culture with the macabre. And I, and I wonder why that is. One, one craze that, that really kind of just popped up out of nowhere about seven or eight years ago was the zombie craze. And I really wasn't into the zombie thing, but we, we had a lot of TV shows like, like The Walking Dead or I, Zombie. Even the Disney Channel did a musical about zombies that was aimed toward teens and tweens. And I just kind of thought, what are we doing here? Uh, it's a little strange to me. And I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine that I worked with back when I was still in retail. And he was into the zombie thing. He really liked to you know, do this stuff. So I was just asking him, like, why is this so fascinating to you? Why is culture so wrapped up in this right now? And I'm, and I'm glad that it seems to be, uh, well dying out now, but at the time it was real big. And so he was kind of explaining to me, but as he explained it, I just got more confused because he seemed to have a fascination with, with death and dying and the zombies ability to overcome it. And I'm like, I'm not sure that I believe that the zombie has overcome it because he explained to me, they're not dead, but they're not alive. They're just sort of undead. And I'm like, well, that's, not a word. I don't like the sound of that at all. But then he told me I, I should really reconsider my position because he says the Bible is chock full of stories about the undead. Unable to think of any on the, on the fly, I said to him, would you please clarify that statement? And so he reminded me of stories where people had died, but Jesus brought them back to life. And so I could kind of see where he was going with this. But after he gave a few specifics, I had to tell him that he was, wait for it, <clears throat> dead wrong. 
Because Jesus' power doesn't bring people to a state of being undead. When Jesus uses his power, dead people become alive. There's a big difference between alive and undead. And so I told him, you know, when Jesus healed, when he performed miracles, and in fact, I wouldn't say so much that he performed a miracle, so much as he miraculously restored order to something or to someone that was off. And that brings us to our sermon in a sentence today, probably the easiest one I've ever given you. Jesus restores life. That's our sermon today. Jesus restores life. Amen? Let me give you a chance to get that written down, and then we're going to go to the Heavenly Father here. Ask the Spirit to be a part of our time together, if you'll pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, remind us, would you please, that this holiday does not belong to the devil. All days are yours. All things are yours. Paul says in Colossians 1 that all things are created by you and for you, and he reminds us that you existed before all things. So if this day belongs to anyone, it's you. Because you existed before days were given, let alone before days even were a thing to begin with. So with that in mind, as we turn our attention to your word for encouragement today, my prayer is that you'll revive our hearts, even as you revived a number of folks throughout the gospel stories, and help us to use your word to do the same for others in our lives who seem to be going through life with one foot in the grave. We love you and we pray in Jesus through faith. Amen. To be clear, there are no zombies in the Bible. That simply wasn't a true statement that my friend had made. Um, there aren't zombies, but there are people who aren't dead anymore because they had an encounter with Jesus Christ. In fact, there are several. In, uh, in Mark chapter 5, Jesus revives a young girl whose father, Jairus, asks Jesus for help. She had died uh, on his way over to the house, but Jesus, as he does, reached down into death, pulled her right out of it, and gave her some breakfast. Uh, Luke chapter 7 tells a story uh, about a young man who had died, the, the only son of a widow. And as the pallbearers are taking his casket to the place where he's going to be buried, Jesus kind of crashes the funeral. I love when that happens, by the way. He touches the side of the casket. The young man sits up in the casket. I wonder what the pallbearers did at that point. Whoa! The poor guy probably drops. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that happened. In Matthew 27, we read about a number of unnamed saints who came from their graves after, uh, after Jesus was killed on the cross. And of course, after Jesus was killed on the cross, most famously, we know that he had the authority to not just lay down his life, but to also do what? To pick it up again. So Jesus himself was dead but then came back to life. There's another story, though, one that you're likely familiar with. You probably wonder why I've left it off of the screen here. This is the story of a guy by the name of Lazarus. And the reason I didn't list it there is because that's going to be our main story for today in John 11. And I'd like to kind of analyze this story, discuss it a little bit. John chapter 11, we're going to start right at the beginning with verse 1. We read that a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later would pour the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wipe them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God that the that the Son of God will receive glory for this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. 
You know, when you read these verses, there's a temptation there, I think. Uh, you see Jesus, he, he knows that Lazarus is sick, and yet he decides he's going to wait a, a little while. And, and, you know, that Jesus doesn't get right up and go see his ailing friend makes us kind of think a little less of Jesus. Why wouldn't he want to go see his friend before he dies? But Jesus doesn't seem to be in a hurry to travel here, does he? Maybe let's pause there for just a second because I'd be willing to bet that some of you feel Mary and Martha's frustration a bit here. They had a sense of urgency in their request because they knew that their brother was not long for this world. And yet when Jesus hears the request, he decides he's going he's gonna to wait a little while longer. But if Jesus were there, they know that he could stop the sickness from taking Lazarus from them. Now, Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. However, we know the story, most of us anyway, Lazarus does end up dying. Spoiler alert, if this is new, sorry, I should have called that. I'm really bad at that. But it's interesting to me that Jesus waits two days. We're going to discuss why that is a little more as we move ahead here. But for now, I want to zero in on the fact that Jesus seems to know that his friend is going to die, and yet he decides not to be in too much of a hurry to get out there and see them. And maybe you feel Mary and Martha's frustration. I, I would imagine that there have been, or, or maybe there's a circumstance that you're going through right now, where you feel like Jesus isn't acting quickly enough. Maybe it's a sin that you're trying to overcome and you're asking him for help, but he's, he's slow in bringing about an answer to your prayer. It's a battle that you feel like you're losing. Or, or, or maybe there's someone that you know who's walked away from the faith and you're praying for them to return and they haven't yet and your soul just aches over that person not coming home to Jesus. Or, or maybe just as in the story we're reading, you or someone you know is sick and is getting worse and you're waiting for Jesus to do something about it. There could of course be any number of reasons that we have that if we're honest, we're frustrated with God today because he seems to be taking his time working through things. Sometimes in fact, we wonder if he's even working at all. Because again, here in the story, we read that Jesus is aware of Lazarus's condition. He knows what's going on. Verse 5 specifically tells us that although he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he decides to stay put for a couple of days. And maybe it's hard to hear that because it confirms a suspicion that you've been having about Jesus waiting to do something in your situation. I've wrestled with this before. This is a little difficult for me to admit, but I, uh, I feel now is an appropriate time to do so. If I can just be honest with you for a second, I have wrestled in the past with why it's so important for me to pray for God's intervention. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4 not to be anxious, but rather to pray about everything. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says to always be praying. Pray without ceasing. Keep praying often, always, never stop. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 tells us to seek and we will find. Now that word seek, and I believe we've talked about this somewhat recently, that Greek word seek is the word zeteo, which means look in order to find. Keep at it. Try to obtain. Strive for. You know this is going to be something difficult to find, like a, like a buried treasure or, or, or your, your car keys or the remote control, something that seems impossible to find. You want to find it. He says, keep on seeking and you will find it. But I ask you the question this morning, why? Why, if Jesus, as he says one chapter before, he tells us that God knows everything that we need even before we have the opportunity to ask him for it, why then does he require us 
to ask. If he knows what we need, why require us to keep on asking, keep on searching, keep on seeking? Why do that if he could just grant the request that he knows that we need instead of making us ask him again and again and again for it. In fact, to illustrate this principle, Jesus tells a story about a judge who is unjust, who this woman wants justice from him, and he finally gives in to this woman, not because his heart has been turned toward her plea, but because she's annoying him. Every day she comes before him asking for justice, and finally, just to to get her to stop bothering him, the judge grants her request. Do our... Prayers annoy Jesus? If you've ever felt that way, and I'm not saying that they do, but if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever been frustrated by this phenomenon, you are in good company. I, for one, have had that struggle. And I think biblically, we see Isaiah the prophet also struggling with this a little bit. He's interceding for Judah in Isaiah chapter 64. And in verse 1, he says, Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down, how the mountains would quake in your presence as fire causes wood to burn and water to boil. Your coming would make the nations tremble. Then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. When you came down long ago, you did awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations. Oh, how the mountains quaked. Isaiah is lamenting the fact that God seems to be taking his time intervening on Judah's behalf. In fact, he spends so much time, he goes on to say, let's skip down a little bit. Verse 9, he says, don't be so angry with us, Lord. Please don't remember our sins forever. Look at us, we pray, and see that we are all your people. Your holy cities are destroyed. Zion is a wilderness. Yes, Jerusalem is a desolate ruin. The holy and beautiful temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned down, and all the things of beauty are destroyed. After all this, Lord, must you still refuse to help us? Will you continue to be silent and punish us? Maybe it feels like God has been silent. Maybe it feels like he's punishing you by not answering your prayers. If Isaiah the prophet could admit that, maybe we can admit that we feel that way sometimes too. And I think it's okay that we do feel that way because Jesus' plan seems to be quite intentional. In Isaiah's case, Judah does end up going into exile. They're carried off from home. Eventually, they get to return, of course. God does eventually answer that prayer. But when they come back, they do so without all the people who stirred up God's wrath to begin with. That puts them in a much better position for success. It puts them in a better position to obey God's word. And it lays the groundwork for Jesus to come in the gospel stories. In Jesus' case here in John 11, we see that there's some intentionality behind his planning as well. Let's go back to the text in John, verse 11. He said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant that Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant that Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe, come, let's go see him. Sometimes Jesus doesn't heal the sick. Sometimes Jesus raises the dead. Sometimes your plans may not line up with God's plans because he is doing something far better. He is doing something far greater than you can imagine. And I don't necessarily know what that thing is, but I know that he knows and I trust him because I've seen him do it before. 
We spoke a couple weeks ago about David fighting Goliath. We spoke about the fact that David's trust in being able to take down the giant wasn't predicated on his own exceptional stone-slinging skills, but rather on the fact that God had given him victory before. He, he says to Saul that, that hey, the, the, the same God who, who gave me victory over the lions and tigers and bears when they would come out and attack my sheep will give me victory over this Philistine as well. And so I wonder, as David moved forward in faith, knowing that God would eventually act on his behalf, I wonder how specifically he has given you victory in your past. What prayers has he answered? What, what are some victories that Jesus brought to you? While you wait for an answer moving forward, I would challenge you to ask yourself how he's answered your prayers in the past and remind yourself of the many blessings that God has provided in the past to help you have faith along the way. There was a song that we sang in the church where I grew up. Uh, sing it along with me if you know it. <clears throat> when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. How many of you thought that Bob Knight would be singing hymns to you today at church? Anything can happen here at Central. <clears throat> Let's go back to our main text. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus waited two days before going to visit with Lazarus. John 11, uh, verse 17 now. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even after dying, will never... <clears throat> Let me get that right. I'm sorry. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who believes in me, everyone who lives in me and believes in me, will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Now, I want to stop asking or stop reading there because I'm less interested in Martha's answer and I'm more interested in your answer. Do you believe that you will live even after dying? Do you believe that? If the answer is yes, and it sounds like it was, then even if the answer to every other question we ever ask is no, don't we serve an amazing God? Because what's a hundred years on earth? What if things don't perfectly go our way while we're here? What's a hundred years on earth compared to eternity with Jesus Christ in paradise? We serve an amazing and awesome God. If you truly believe what Jesus is saying here, there's no need to complain about anything ever. But I digress. I want to get back to the matter of hand, how much time Jesus spent before traveling to see Lazarus. Verse 17 tells us that when Jesus arrived, not only had Lazarus died by this point, but, but the, the note is added that he'd been in his grave for four days. And I will submit to you that I believe that Jesus waited 
all four of those days on purpose. Now, I could be wrong about this, of course. I've been wrong before. I used to think that golden grams and golden girls were the same thing. <laughs> Jesse said you wouldn't laugh at that. I'm glad that, okay. <laughs> I, think, I think Jesus waited four days on purpose. Well, he waited two days. We know that, right? Because he, he said that, that, that they waited two days. Uh, but it's likely that Lazarus passed away before the messenger arrived to tell Jesus what was happening. Because from the story, we can discern that it was about a day's walk to get to Lazarus's home. Because verse 6 tells us that Jesus had, had waited two days, and yet verse 17 says it had been four days that Lazarus had been in his grave. So here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that Lazarus died shortly after, or, or maybe even just as, the messenger was leaving to tell Jesus what's going on here. And Jesus then waits two days, which takes us to the third day. And then Jesus leaves to see him. If it's one day's travel, that means he arrives on the fourth day that Lazarus had been dead. Why does this matter? Well, let me tell you. I think that we make a big mistake in the funeral services that we hold today. As a pastor, I've done a number of funeral services that, uh, you know, I choose my words very carefully when I pray to commit the body to the ground. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a fine thing to, to do. But preachers will often say, Lord, we lay our brother or sister to rest this day. Uh, no, we don't. <laughs> because here's the thing. The Apostle Paul tells us that when we are absent from the body, we are at home with? We, yeah, so really... When we bury the bodies, generally we have the funeral several days after a person has passed away. And so really that person has entered their rest sometime before we actually get to the funeral. Now the Jews back in the day, they had a similar sort of thought. It was believed that God, of course, could intervene for the dead person shortly after they died. In fact, today we, we hear a story. How many of you have heard stories or, or how many of you know people who have technically died and been dead for several minutes, but then they're able to be revived and come back to life. And a lot of times those people go on to live long and healthy lives after that happens. And so that was the kind of the Jews' belief. In, in their case, they believed that up to three days, God could bring someone back uh, to life. Uh, now, three days is an awful long time for something like that to happen, but it was a common belief, a common thought that for up to three days after a person had died, God could at any point perform a miracle, and bring that person back to life. That was the idea. It was a closely held belief that God could raise a person to life within a three-day time span. That Jesus had specifically waited until a fourth day to revive Lazarus tells us something. It suggests that the crowd would have accepted Lazarus' death at this point as irrevocable and absolute. Notice what happens when Jesus approaches Lazarus' grave. In John eleven thirty nine. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them, but Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Notice the shift in, in Martha's attitude. She went from believing in verse 32 that had Jesus been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died, to now saying in verse 39, if he opens the grave, it's going to smell badly. With that three-day waiting period over, these people had firmly accepted the finality of Lazarus's fate. And so then with all hope lost, with all logical and reasonable arguments for hope cast aside, Jesus enters the situation and tells them to roll the stone away and we all know what happens next, right? 
Earlier in the chapter, in verse 25, Jesus tells Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. Not that he is simply able to give and do those things, but that he is those things. Therefore, to know him is to know life. To follow him is to experience life. To believe in him is to have eternal life. So when he calls Lazarus from the grave, what happens? He gets out of that thing. Verse 41, they rolled the stone aside. Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of these people standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Lazarus comes out of the grave at Jesus' command. He's, he's not dead. He's not a zombie. He's not some form of undead. He is alive. Dead men walk when Jesus tells them to rise. Did you not? Were you not dead in your sins and transgressions before Jesus called your name? I want to look at something the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us what? Life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. You were dead in your sins. I was dead in my sin. But when Jesus called us, we came out of the grave. We're not dead anymore. We are alive in Christ. And even if life on earth isn't what we expect, even if it seems like it's taking forever for him to work and move and act on our behalf, he will. If not in this life, then in the next, because he is the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in him, even though we die on this earth, we will live forever with him, which is greater by far than anything that life on earth could ever be. But lest you think that this was a sermon just to encourage you about the life that you know you're going to enjoy in heaven, this was actually a sermon to challenge you now. Note the final verse that we read in John 11, verse 44. He's not talking to Lazarus. He's talking to the crowd around Lazarus. In verse 44, what does he say? He says, unwrap him and let him go. He was covered in grave clothes. And that's silly because Lazarus wasn't a dead man. He's alive. What business does an alive person have wearing the clothes of the dead? So Jesus says, unwrap him and let him go. It's inappropriate for him to walk around in grave clothes. Now, here's where the challenge comes in for you and I. One of the first sermons I ever heard as a Johnson student years ago, I don't remember the guy's name. I'm not sure I could even pick him out of a crowd if he was visiting us today. But I remember what he said. He was preaching from this story, and he said that we as Christians are tasks, we are tasked with the responsibility of removing grave clothes 
of the people that we see walking around in darkness, in bondage. They're like dead men walking around in grave clothes, and they don't need to be. Instead, they need someone to tell them that there is a Savior, that He Himself is the resurrection and the life. And, and even though those folks are dead in their sins and their transgressions, there's no need to stay that way. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 that when God forgives our sin, he makes us alive in Christ. So my challenge to you today is that when you're out there in the world and you see dead men walking, take off their grave clothes, unwrap them, and let them go. Show them that there is a better way. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. That brings us to our three weekly challenges as we wrap things up here. Challenge number one is to unwrap the truth. Take off the grave clothes by sharing the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. This works best when we can have a functional relationship with the people to whom we're speaking. But don't be so closed-minded that the Holy Spirit might not use you in a moment to minister to someone you might not even know right then and right there. Peter tells us to always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that we have. The world tries to hide the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unwrap that message and let people see it. Challenge number two is to unwrap the way. Using your life as an example, show them the way. Show them what it means to follow Jesus. Remember that if you walk through these doors, you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are an example of what it means to follow him. Especially when people know that you're a Christian, they're going to be watching you with a really, really high-powered microscope. So show them what it means to follow Jesus. Keep a joyful heart, even when life doesn't go your way, because eventually it will. And finally, challenge number three is to unwrap the life. I have to wonder if you're here today or or maybe you're someone watching online today and you haven't accepted this life that we've been talking about. Maybe you yourself are still walking around in grave clothes. Lazarus came out of his grave when Jesus called him. What about you? If you're here this morning and you haven't responded to him, he's calling your name today. Will you walk out of the grave Will you trust Jesus with your salvation? You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to pay anything. You don't need to do anything because Jesus already did it. Jesus paid it all. All you really need to do is to trust him and follow him and know that he lives. And since he lives, you can too. If anything we said today made you realize it's time to take hold of that life, you're ready to respond to Jesus. Now I would encourage you to come forward. I'll be hanging out right here as the band comes forward with one more song, a, a song of invitation. And we would invite you during that time to come and, and, and accept Jesus. Or if you have questions about what that means, you're not sure, you're thinking about it, get a hold of me through the week. I would love to connect with you and talk with you about Jesus. But for now, let's pray together. If you'll pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, I thank you for life, not just life here on earth, but the life that we can know eternally with Christ, the life that becomes far more abundant and satisfying as we walk with him. My prayer, Father, as we wrap things up today is that you'll unwrap the grave clothes that encumber us and keep us from experiencing life as you would have us live it. May we know abundant and joyful life and lead others to it as well with the help of your son, Jesus. We pray in his name through faith. Amen.